great day uh, for multiple reasons. Just the beginning of Advent is really great. Also, it's a great opportunity to remind the whole church that we believe that preaching is a team sport. We believe that what happens, like on Sundays, the teaching of the Word is not a a one kind of superhero person doing it. I don't know how many of you actually listened to the podcast that Casey and I and the other elders did, but it was four hours long or something like that. It was it was meaty, but in it we kind of explained what we believe preaching is in our church, which is uh, the the exaltation of God through His Word, through a person preaching the Word. Uh, and in our church, we believe that. Uh, the elders oversee uh, the shepherding and the care of the whole flock, but we don't do all of the shepherding and the care of the flock. We, we oversee it, and we empower other people to do it. For the last four months, we've been doing a preaching cohort like we've done in the past, uh, and Sarah and Evie and Austin have all been part of that, and so they've been preparing to preach, and what we do is we walk through what preaching is, then we walk through how to study the text, then how to put this text into an outline, and then how to, how to preach it and everything. And so it's been a real pleasure. Obviously, Sarah is a master teacher. I think she's got a PhD in it or something. But I'm really excited about Sarah preaching this morning, having heard it already and read the notes about 20 times. I'm really excited to be amazed by something you've thrown in there that surprised me. No, I'm just kidding. No pressure. (laughs) A whole new other thing. Anyway, uh, Sarah, you're so great. And honestly, your authority to teach is, you know, in a way delegated from us as elders, but also the authority comes from your life and what the Spirit has done in you and through you. And so... Yeah, how about you come up and I'll pray for you, and then you'll, you get to do it <laughs> after so many years waiting. Uh, Jesus, uh, or months, sorry. No. I mean, <laughs> uh, Jesus, uh, thank you so much for Sarah and her life. Thank you for the, the power that you have placed within her to love neighbors, to love this city, to love our church. Uh, Thank you for her faithfulness in the small things and the big things. And I just pray for us to hear and respond uh, to what your spirit has for us today as she teaches us from your scriptures. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Morning. Good, Jared. Perfect. I hope everyone had a lovely, lovely Thanksgiving. It is great to see all 17 of us who have made it back from traveling. No. I hope it was delicious food and good time with family and friends and all of that. So as you know, I'm Sarah, and this was out on my notes, but my mini sermonette is a very long time ago, I became, okay, at Moody Bible Institute, the first time I ever saw a woman preach was at Moody's Missions Conference, and it was Beth Moore preaching. And I'd never seen a woman preach before, and she got up she actually knelt down on her knees and she prayed to become under the eldership and authority of Moody Bible Institute. And then she proceeded to give an amazing preaching and teaching, glorifying God using her gifts. And I was blown away. One, just seeing a woman like myself up there and one, to see her humility and just to come under that authority. And I think ever since that, I've been super passionate about women preaching and teaching and women using their gifts. 
Um, In college, I wrote a paper called High Heels Behind the Pulpit, and I really wanted to wear high heels behind the music stand, but they're very uncomfortable, so these are a nod to that. But it isn't just, I think, I appreciate the work our elders and our church has done about taking this step, and I mostly want to say that I think it isn't that I am some master teacher or preacher, but it is about all of us using our gifts to glorify God. And so if this is an opportunity that God can do that, and just that we can all be seen and encouraged, each and every one of us, that we all have gifts God has given us, and that when we use them, his name gets glorified, and he gets the glory. And it's a beautiful representation of the church. So whether it's a woman preaching or teaching or you singing or worshiping or creating art installations, however God is going to use that gifts, I hope that we can all celebrate that and bring that to light. So that wasn't the sermon, but that's how we're starting it. So the sermon, here we go. So you know that sinking feeling when you've had a conversation, you read a text message, something's off in the relationship, someone said something, you feel hurt. You were like, wait a second, that didn't go how I thought. Someone didn't invite you. Someone shared your information without your consent. Someone did this, did that. Someone texts you something weird with a period in it instead of an exclamation point. And you start spiraling and you think, was that me? Was that the other person? I don't know. And you're going and you're going. Did they really mean to say that? And you start spiraling and you're like, honestly, though, that's always like them. Maybe I should just brush it under the rug. It's me. It's definitely me. No. I always brush it under the rug. And now I'm just going to feel bad and have more resentment towards that person. And you're like, maybe I should talk to them. I'm going to talk to them. But will they be self-reflective? I don't know. Are they going to turn it on themselves? Turn it on me? Am I crazy? Are they crazy? What is happening? Anyone triggered yet? No. Is that just me? Thank you. You guys get a small peek into what my life is like. Those thoughts are super consuming. Spiraling is really intense. It takes away from our peace and our time. Maybe some of you don't spiral like me. You've had thoughts on like, are they really Christians? Oh my gosh, they believe in this? They voted for that person? Vaccines? Tracks? What? They cannot possibly be proclaiming the name of Jesus. They don't believe in the Jesus I believe in. You've had those thoughts, infuriating. It's so frustrating. You're like, God, I don't get it. Conflicts in our lives, in the least, are consuming. They take our time, our mental space, our capacity. They take away from our peace. But conflicts at their worst cause broken relationships, hurt, church splits. They take away from the gospel and the love that God has in his unity and family of believers. So in today's passage, we're going to deal with conflict. Yay, I love it. People just like us who have conflict. And we're gonna see what Paul has to say, what truth is provided and what hope is given. So our passage today is Philippians 4, two through seven. I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, 
But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that you have given us yourself and your spirit in your words. Lord, when you placed us on this earth, you didn't just leave us alone to figure it out. Thank you so much that your spirit is here with us today, Lord. May your spirit give me clarity of speech and be a learner and a listener in all of our hearts in here today. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for truth and hope, God, as we said in this Advent season, Lord. In a world that seems hopeless, in conflicts that seem hopeless, thank you that you provide us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So we had a lovely preaching cohort, which was so amazing. And when we started it, Brad listed out, here's some dates and passages if you would like to preach. And I like looked through and I was like, this one, do not be worried, do not have anxious. I was like, great, I have a lot of anxiety. So if I preach on this, I'm sure it will help it. <laughs> it only caused a little bit more. And then I was like reading the passage and I was like looking deeper because I was like, you're used to that like, don't be worried, the rejoice passage. But before it, I was like, huh, two women, great. I, I want to preach about women. And I was like, oh, they're fighting. I love this. I was like, cool. I'm a conflict-averse person, and this is one of the first times Soma has had a woman preacher, and I get to talk about women fighting. This is great. Um, but God and his goodness, we are all learners. And even me studying this passage is that there's hope. I have not mastered anything, but that we get to learn together and hold on to what is true and what is good in this passage. And also my amazing preaching cohort and Brad, Evie, Austin were so helpful in helping me prepare for this. Um, so how does Paul help these women who were in conflict? The first thing he does is he names the conflict and he brings it to light. So my second nod to Moody Bible Institute, hopefully you're listening to this, is they taught me that context is king. So we have been studying Philippians for a long time, just kidding, for a great amount of time. And in Philippians, we've been really talking about what it means to live genuine Christian life. So we talked about rejoicing, there's talk thanksgiving, living in unity, having the mindset of Christ. So it's all about our living as Christians, living as lights in this world. Philippians 1.27 says, standing firm in one spirit, one accord, contending together. The whole chapter of Philippians 2, right, is the mindset of Christ. Some of the phrases, we stand firm in one spirit, one accord, I read, that. Oh, I read that already, cool. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Consider others more important in all humility. 2.14 says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Later, he goes on to say that we are to work together. We are to live together as family, be shining lights in the world around us. And this was super true for the Philippians. They lived in a super cosmopolitan city, much like ours, and they were also living out their faith in the midst of persecution. Paul gives a lofty calling to be like Christ, to live like Christ in the world around. But Paul is super real, and he knows that he lives with real humans and real sinners, and we have conflict. And so he specifically calls it out. 
He names names, like shots fired, Paul. He gives a real-life example, all of this talk of unity and loving each other and having the mindset of Christ. And he says, let's apply it to this situation right here, ladies. You talked about the gospel and living it out, but how does this work exactly in this argument and in this conflict? And yes, these were women, Two women, women people, yes, women. I'm going to say women a lot today. They were co-laborers with Paul. They were church planters in our 2023 lingo. They were on the sending team, the church planting team. They were prominent women and leaders in the church. Everyone would have known them. Everyone would have listened to them and followed them and seen how they lived their lives. So when this letter was read aloud... People were like, oh, our church leaders, oh. And if they hadn't known about the conflict, now they did. Paul didn't want this conflict, these arguments to continue. He didn't want it to be hidden. Some of you know I say, better out than in. And that deals a lot with our feelings, not maybe with Thanksgiving stuff. But when we have conflict, hurt, pain, trauma, a lot of times we try to stuff it. We don't think our feelings are real. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. But sometimes when we stuff those feelings, they are not supposed to be stuffed and they're supposed to come out. And if we are not dealing with it in a healthy way, they often come out sideways in an unexpected response, in an unexpected time, not healthy. I think as Christians, we try to live often behind the guise of love and servanthood and graciousness and like, ah, I'm going to forgive and forget. I'm going to give it to God and let go, and I'm not going to deal with it. We can hide behind sermons of unity and the gospel. We can show up and serve and take communion, but are we doing the actual gospel work in our lives, the relational work, the healing the work together of actually living out the mindset of Christ. It's inward work. I think we think we can hide it, but we're walking around with hurt and pain. People can notice the difference. That was a weird interaction. That wasn't the same. There's broken relationships. Often in our world, it's the hidden things that can cause the most damage. Hidden cancer cells that are taking apart an organ in someone's lives. It is hidden tunnels under countries, trafficking people and weapons. Maybe it is that mold growing on your Thanksgiving leftovers. It's really terrible. But it's these hidden things that can often fester and ruin things. With mold, I was doing a lot of research last night about it to just make sure. I was like, am I talking this illustration right? But once it's like exposed to light and the light dries it out, mold doesn't necessarily die, which is kind of sad, but it becomes super inactive. It cannot grow anymore. It cannot continue to destroy leftovers. I think Satan very much wants our conflict, our feelings, our trauma to be hidden like that so it can grow, so it can fester. He does not want us to have hope. He does not want us to have resolution. He wants to bring things out. But Paul is saying, let's bring things out into the light. We don't want it to continue. We don't want it to go forward. So what is happening in our lives right now? Is there a conflict? Is there something we're super anxious about? Where can we bring it out into the light? 
Do not let it fester. So Paul doesn't just name the conflict. He doesn't just bring it out into the light, but he calls the women to unity and restoration to come together for resolution. And resolution isn't just for conflict's sake, but that resolution in conflict is often a small representation of the restoration that Jesus Christ did between himself and us with his death and resurrection on the cross. What I loved about this passage is that Paul doesn't pick sides. He doesn't say who started it. He didn't say who was more of a pill, who was right, which my gossipy, dramatic self really wants to know. So maybe I'll ask on the other side of heaven. But he just says, can you solve it? Can you come to unity? Scholars think this conflict, which again is not mentioned what it is, um, was actually about, these were two prominent Christian leaders about how the gospel could actually go forward, right? How were they actually living the gospel out in their time? Which makes sense, right? It was talking about shining stars, having the mindset of Christ, unity, the family of God, having the mindset. So it makes sense that these prominent women leaders were like, I think it should be done this way, and I think it should be done this way, and I think my way is right. And it honestly is not too much different than church conflict today. I was like, yeah, this is very prevalent. How do we do baptism in churches? What do we think about the manifestation of spiritual gifts? How, what kind of worship does your church do? What, do you, what is your end times theology? Do you believe that women can preach? Are you an affirming church? Are you a church that believes in social justice? There are so many examples that are, can separate the church and divide us, that take away from our unity. And few people get to experience the unified body of Christ, the gospel going forward, a gospel of hope and peace. Honestly, I get super angry about this sometimes. I'm just like, how can they call themselves Christians? They are doing this, and I think the Bible says this, and they believed this, and I believe this. I really don't, and in this world right now, we are so polarized and so divided. I feel like more and more, if one side says this, we're gonna cancel them and go the complete opposite way. And it really is heartbreaking to be like, God, how can people see the beautiful familial love of God's family when we are like fighting about these things and being completely polar opposites. Lord, how is your gospel going to go forward when we spend more time fighting and arguing than actually loving your people and showing them what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus? And these are big things, but conflict also can come down to very small little things. We are humans and we are real and a lot of it, churches are filled with people that are sinners. I'm sorry, everyone in here. We are, I am. We have interpersonal conflict. Maybe it was a different way to lead an MC. Maybe it was who is leading an MC? Why do we have MCs? Who didn't get invited to this birthday party? Why didn't they call me? I was really stressed out and hurting. Our kids really did something weird in Sunday school. I didn't like how we handled that. We have interactions that can cause conflict and strife just within us and our church. It can cause hurt and broken relationships. And if it isn't resolved, it can cause strife and resentment and divide our body. It is okay to have conflict. It is normal to have conflict. Conflict has been here since the beginning of time. The problem, I think, with conflict, though, is that it does take up so much of our time. 
Sometimes we can focus on ourselves in conflict. We think about, what did I say? Am I right? Was this, what did they say? It can reveal our selfishness, our pride, our idols. It is not showing the mindset of Christ, his humility or graciousness. And honestly, it just takes up a lot of time and capacity that we could be doing other things. The Bible states that unity in the familial love of God actually demonstrates his gospel. It demonstrates his love for us. John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Colossians 3, 13 through 14, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And on, above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. John 17, 23, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me, even as you have loved me. Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And another saint, not necessarily in our canon, Mother Teresa, spread the love of God through your life, but only use words when necessary. A lot of what the gospel looks like going forward in our broken world is through our unity and through our love, how we love one another. Imagine what the church in America would look like if we came together. What could we do for the houseless, for the foster youth, for the broken, the hurting, the marginalized? What if we came together instead of spending time thinking about our differences? And conflict resolution isn't just about resolving the argument, right? When we come together and get resolution and restoration, it is a small glimpse of the amazing restoration and resolution that was done for us on the cross. That we have restoration through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His blood covers your sins in the conflict. It covers your brothers and sisters' sins in the conflict. He showed us how to have graciousness, mercy, forgiveness, and ultimately how to love one another. So do we believe this restoration is possible? Do we strive for unity over self-interest? Do we believe God has the power over it, the power to heal, the power to store, the power to unify? So Paul has named the conflict. He brought it to light, and he tells us that unity lets the gospel go forward. But how do we actually solve conflict in our lives according to the gospel? Okay, you can write notes now. No, just kidding. All of that was super important. Currently, our world tells us to ghost one another, cancel each other, have a mindfulness jar, do yoga, move to another country. I just finished a book about a guy in conflict, and he traveled around the whole world. Great book, though. Email your representative, post it on your social media, leave a mean comment, leave a bad review, or just ignore it and watch a lot of Netflix. This is how the world tells us to deal with conflict. But the gospel gives us so much more a better hope. First, and so great, Paul asks another person to help out. That these women are not alone in their conflict. They do not have to solve it on their own. They are given a helper and a friend, another perspective, a mediator. 
We do not have to be alone. We have a body of believers. We have all image bearers here. We can ask for help. Do not be afraid to ask. You are not alone. You are not the sinner among sinners. Honestly, when you probably share, ask someone for help, people would be like, oh, same, same. I have dealt with that. I feel that. I'm going through that. A lot of times we need someone to change our perspective, help us get a mental shift off of ourselves, off of that other person, onto what is really important. So who is that person in our lives, in your lives? Who could be that person of wisdom and discernment? Next, Paul says, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Like, what, Paul, read the room, we're in conflict here. Not the thing to be talking about right now. But I think Paul isn't trying to be dismissive of the conflict, but he's telling us to turn our eyes not onto the conflict, but onto himself. The God Almighty, the maker of the heavens and earth, who has the power to do all things and the power to heal and the power to restore. Is our gaze on ourselves, on that person, on the conflict, or is it on our ultimate God and Father? When I was thinking of rejoicing in the midst of conflict, images of slaves working in the fields and freedom marchers on the Selma Bridge came to mind. They were singing, we will overcome, in many other gospels, while hate, sneering, oppression was happening. They were walking forward, working and marching, singing praises to an almighty God, reminding themselves that they have a big God in the midst of conflict, a God who sees them, a God who is with them, a God giving hope and restoration and power to get us out of these conflicts. Uh, Spurgeon had some commentary on this passage, and I really loved the phrase. He wrote this something about the duty of joy. In our Christian lives, we're not called into drudgery, but we're called into the duty of joy. He does not, there is hope for us in the midst of conflict, in the midst of opposing sides and church arguing. This conflict is not the present reality. It is not the end. That we have a greater story, a bigger picture, and a bigger hope. Amen. <laughs> Next it says, be gracious or be gentle. Let that be seen. Let that be evident. Honestly, in conflict, I am a rager. I am not very good at arguing. Um, Jeff has witnessed Casey and I talk about the patriarchy a lot. Um, over Christmas break, one Christmas like seven years ago, we, we tried talking about politics with my family, and it just really did not go well. We broke the cardinal rule, like don't talk about that. I feel like I need to be right. I'm not very good at listening. I get very petty. Sometimes I even like, I just say petty things. It's not great. It is not the mindset of Christ. It does not help resolve anything, and it does not bring unity that way. But my lovely husband um, stays so cool and calm and collective. He asks clarifying questions he seeks to understand. He lets people share their opinion. A lot of my family members are like, we love talking to Casey about politics. He doesn't get mad. It's like, oh, like me, you mean? <laughs> so be like Casey. Just kidding. Be like Christ. I love how he embodies that graciousness and gentleness. 
wonder if we all had a little more gentleness in conflict, a little more graciousness, that we assumed the best. Particularly, again, we are a polarized, canceling each other out, go to the extremes culture. There's not a lot of coming to the middle. There is not a lot of listening. There is not a lot of assuming the best in one another. What would it look like to do that with the person you're in conflict with, the side you don't agree with, the political party, the denomination? My girl, Mother Teresa, said, if we have no peace, it is because we have often forgot to see God in one another. That this person you are arguing with, this side you don't agree with, they are bearing the image of the almighty God. If we thought about them as image bearers, how would that change our interactions with them? How we see them, how we talk to them, how we talk about them. This is the mindset of Christ, that humility, to not have selfish ambition. How do we approach one another? What would our world look like with more graciousness? Would Congress work? (laughs) Could we find conflict resolution? Would we be able to help each other out instead of ourselves? Would the church be a safe place that we could talk about things and come to the middle, a safe place? Paul also reminds us, God is near. He sees us. He's with us. I don't think Paul is saying this to be dismissive of conflict or what is happening, but a reminder about who is in charge, who loves us, who sees our conflict, who sees us in the midst of it. I think a lot of times in conflict, when we want to be right or prove ourselves or we don't want to approach conflict resolution, it comes out of insecurity, Do I know that I am deeply, deeply loved by the maker of the earth? Or am I striving to prove myself? So I really need to be right in this conflict so I can prove myself worth and value. Next, Paul says, do not be anxious. So guys, don't be anxious. Like my spirals before, just turn it off, right? There's a funny Broadway song about that. Um, I don't think God is saying that. This could be a very troublesome passage. I think it has probably been taken out of context a lot of times and been used to tell people just to stop. You don't need to freak out about this. You don't need to deal with it. Stuff it down. Do not be anxious. But I think what's happening here is in conflict, we can have a lot of anxiety. How do I deal with this? Will our relationship be broken? Will I still be able to be a light to my neighbors after this incident happened between my kids and their kids in the park? We think about the anxiety with our church, how we're so divided, the anxiety in in our world right now. I don't think Christ asks us to turn it off, but I think he asks us to turn towards him. Do we sit, sometimes we can sit paralyzed in our anxiety. We don't do anything, we ruminate, we spiral, we go everywhere else, but we we forget to turn to the almighty God. And finally, he says, pray. Seems very cliche, like your little mug. Pray, Ray Dunn. But honestly, in the midst of conflict, do we stop and pray? We can be so busy spiraling about it, thinking about it, researching the other side. We can brain dump on our husband or on our friends, but are we actually turning to God and talking to him about it? 
Are we asking for help? Are we asking for graciousness? Are we asking for forgiveness and peace and hope? Are we asking for the words to say? Are we asking for a mediator to help us? I think a lot of times in prayers, we can whitewash it and make it super vague instead of specific. And Paul says, petition, ask specifically about it. Present your request to Christ. So be specific, pray, give the Lord your concerns, your hurts, your worries, your trauma, your anxiety. He is there, he is listening. Nothing is too big or too small for him. He already knows it and he is near and he is listening. And he ends the passage with, then the peace of Christ will transcend. How beautiful. In a world of false peace and addressing conflict or ignoring it, that the true peace of Christ will descend over us. A long time ago, before I just wore leggings all the time and dragged two kids to numerous parks around LA, I worked, I dressed up a lot, and I worked for a nonprofit in New York City. We turned key brain science research into systems and consulting and solutions for really highly needy schools in the Bronx. A lot of our work was taking adverse childhood experiences uh, a little bit from the book Brad told us not to read last week. <laughs> Just kidding. But that if kids have gone through X, Y, and Z, the trauma that happens in their brains and in their bodies can have sometimes lasting effects. So what we were doing at schools was doing things to mitigate that, show kids healthy relationships, positive relationships, boundaries, safety at school, things that would help. A big part of our work was mindfulness which is super great. I even practice it myself. Um, And this was great. We were seeing more peaceful schools and more peaceful children. But this is only a drop in the bucket compared to the peace and restoration offered in Jesus Christ. His peace and restoration are soul-quenching, eternity-filling, and can erase the deepest of conflicts. His blood covers you. It covers the other person in the conflict. And it has the power of healing and hope. His power, his blood covers Israel and Hamas. It covers Russia and Ukraine. It has the power over Republicans and Democrats. And it has the power over you and your family members and you and that person you're having a tiff with in your MC. It is healing, it is real, and it is available to you and me. So... I don't know if this resonated. I don't know if you are like me and conflict averse. But where is there something in your life today? Where has there maybe been an argument, a conflict, some trauma, some hurt that needs to be addressed? And maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just a situation causing a lot of anxiety currently in your life. Is it a job, moving, transitions, your kids getting older, how to handle your kids, how to deal with neighbors, honestly, the world around us, how we respond to conflict and those things in our lives, we can use those same things Paul laid out for us. What if we didn't spiral? What if we didn't rage? What would that look like in our lives? What would it look like in our friendships, in our marriages, in our churches? What if we could show a small representation of the restoration that Jesus Christ provides through his blood on the cross.